Welcome to Conversations on Healthcare. This week we welcome renowned entrepreneur and popular Shark Tank host, Mark Cuban, who is seeking to disrupt the prescription drug market, offering low-cost medications direct to consumers online with his new venture, Cost Plus Drugs. The challenge for patients as it applies to healthcare, we're not as transparent as we need to be. And when you're not transparent, then people don't trust it. We hear from factcheck.org's managing editor, Lori Robertson, and we end with a bright idea. Now, here are your hosts, Mark Maselli and Margaret Flinter. Our guest today is a well-known entrepreneur responsible for multiple startups in digital media, software development, and blockchain. The billionaire businessman is a popular co-host on the hit series Shark Tank and is the principal owner of the Dallas Mavericks basketball team. He has increasingly lent his support on Shark Tank to startups that seek to address inequities in American healthcare. And recently, he launched his own enterprise, the Mark Cuban Cost Plus Drug Company, a public benefit company, an online direct-to-consumer pharmacy that aims to take on the high cost of prescription drugs. Well, Mark Cuban, welcome to Conversations on Healthcare. Thanks for having me. I'm excited to be here. Mark, prescription drugs now are a major factor in the almost $4 trillion a year that gets spent in healthcare in this country. And one out of five Americans can't afford at least one of their prescription medication. And you say there are far too many middlemen in the prescription drug pipeline, which significantly adds to the cost. And you're promising to radically be transparent about the cost. How does that differ from the status quo? Significantly. I mean, there's very much a vertically integrated environment right now where insurance companies own PBMs and own retail pharmacies and are expanding into other areas of healthcare. And they keep on creating these fortresses where they control the left pocket and the right pocket. And by having so much control, they, they're able to create an environment where pricing is opaque, it's confusing. And because they're able to contract with insurers and major corporations, they're able to play these games where they'll say, okay, if you want access to the, all these lives, then you have to do business the way we want to do business. And that is unfortunate and creates a lot of pricing distortion for patients. Well, Mark, our organization delivers care to a large vulnerable population. And I think we do a pretty good job of helping patients access prescriptions at prices they can afford, but it does take an enormous effort. Medicare itself had been blocked from negotiating drug prices, but that's now changed under the President's Inflation Reduction Act. How do you think this new development is going to shift uh, these issues that you've described in the marketplace? I think it'll improve things, obviously, for the 10 drugs and then moving up to more drugs over a period of time. I think it's great for people on insulin who are on Medicare. It doesn't do much of anything for everybody else. And so where there are out-of-pocket limits, the $2,000 will make a big difference as well. But until you get to that $2,000 limit, there's going to be challenges for Medicare patients. And on top of that, you have Medicare Advantage, which is completely distorted, completely confusing, rewarding, not to the patients, but to the owner of the Medicare Advantage company. There, there's still a lot of messiness, and that's one of the things we're hoping to attack. Mark, you've just inked your first health plan deal, Capital Blue Cross in Pennsylvania. This space is highly competitive, so how will it work for the consumers? Well, the way it starts is they'll refer their, their patients to us, 
and then um, using a form, they'll reimburse them. We're updating our software so that shortly it'll all be automated. So you'll just buy through um, Cost Plus Drugs and everything from there in terms of applying to your deductibles, all those things will be handled on an automated basis. And we're also partnering with Prime Therapeutics, which allows us to talk to a lot of other blues. And we're hoping that leads to many other insurers to work with us. And obviously, we're also talking to many, many, many independents because, you know, other than the big three, it's very difficult to control their own pricing and their paying premiums and they're kind of caught in the vortex of dealing with the PBMs. And so we're trying to yank them out of there and the response has been great. Well, Mark, uh, it certainly seems that this approach could save billions of dollars for consumers, but still only targets about 20% of the medication market, uh, the generics and non-generic drugs make up about 80% of total drug costs in America today. And these costs can be just astronomical. What do you think the chances are that your model could eventually expand in ways to the non-generic market? 100%. One of the challenges that manufacturers of branded drugs face is that they've been villainized. Using insulin as as an example, um, everybody thinks that they're responsible for the increasing cost to patients for insulin. When we know, people in the industry know, that's just not the case. That the price that um, manufacturers sell insulin for has actually declined. And so part of why they're excited to work with cost plus drugs is the transparency. Now, patients and others in the industry will be able to see exactly what we pay and what we charge. We often hear that drug research and development is also baked into the cost to the consumer. And some say these low cost approaches will dampen the pace of new drug development. What do you say? Well, you have to ask who's saying that. It's the lobbyists that are saying it. Manufacturers know that they're not gonna bat 100% on their drugs. And so there's a price associated with R&D, licensing or purchasing, and then getting all the approvals and all the marketing. There's a price associated with that. And so you've gotta build all that into how they price. Because the, the manufacturers, for the most part, don't actually have control of their own retail or net price, that's where a lot of distortions come in. Part two, particularly as it applies to specialty drugs, which are the ones that are very expensive, you know, there's a different equation for determining whether or not a a price is fair. If there is a, a medication that adds 10 years to your life and eliminates having to go to the hospital, is $5 million too much? You know, the cost of going through um, care and being in the hospital to take care of that disease before the medication was in place was greater than $5 million. Well, somebody's saving money. The problem in all this is that it's not the insurance companies that are typically saving the money. And that creates the push-pull that is creating problems as we talk about, especially medications. And that creates a lot of what challenges for people going to the specialty drug programs because the insurance companies don't want to pay for them. They're trying to get the manufacturers to provide these high-end expensive medications for nothing so that the insurers don't have to pay what they're obligated to pay. But you've got this challenge that what the insurers want and what the patient wants and what the manufacturer wants are not aligned at all. And so over the next five years, it's going to be very politically expedient for some politicians to say, you know what, we need a public-private partnership that excludes insurance companies so that these high-end specialty drugs are evaluated to make sure that pricing is fair. One of the challenges for those specialty drug manufacturers is percentage of 
valid patients receiving the medication and them getting paid for it. Mm-hmm. A medication, let's just say for easy math, that has a million dollar price tag and has a potential annual um, patient base of a thousand people. Right now, they're not going to be able to get approvals for all thousand of those potential patients. It's more high-end people like me who are able to afford those things. And so through a public-private partnership, you'll be able to say to them, look, you can't charge a million dollars for these thousand patients, but we'll guarantee you that all thousand patients will be able to pay for it and you're only going to charge 500,000 so that you net out at 500 million in revenue as opposed to your hope for $1 billion in revenue so that it's fair to you as a business, it's fair to the patients, all of them who have valid prescriptions from the provider are able to get it, which is the most important part. And we take the organizations that are the inhibitors, the private insurers who don't see the financial benefit from it. Their math probably says in their models that they're not going to get a billion dollars in savings. So they do all they can to prevent paying for it. And so we need to be honest and straightforward and have some transparency. And if the manufacturers of the specialty drugs are willing to do that and we're able to everybody get on the same page, then I think we save a lot of lives and improve the healthcare system. If they don't and we have this continued push-pull where the insurers do their best to deny claims or pre-authorizations, then we have problems. But let me pivot just a, a bit, Mark. Uh, you know, the, the COVID pandemic amplified so many shortcomings and inadequacies in our healthcare system and supply chain was right at the top, but you're going to actually be scaling up your own drug manufacturing factories for cost plus drugs. So tell us about that and what other supply chain issues do you see as ripe for disruption? There are a lot of drugs that go into shortages where there's just not enough of a market for a manufacturer to continuously produce them. And so they they just jack up the price. We've seen that happen multiple times. You know, you have um, sterile water like now, which is hard to come by. And even though it's not hard to make, there's just no manufacturers to do it. Mm-hmm. So with cost plus drugs, we're building, we're finishing out actually a manufacturing plan in, in Dallas, Texas, that is robotically driven so that it only takes us four hours to turn our manufacturing from one injectable to the next. Starting with things like sterile water, we'll talk to all the um, hospitals and all the providers that need it. We'll come up with a a fair price that covers our cost because as a manufacturer, we can't just do it a straight cost plus 15%. Our costs are much higher. And we'll make it available for whatever injectables are in short supply. And then it takes four hours for us to cycle to the next drug. We'll do the next one. Then four hours, we'll do the next one and so on and so forth. If it works out well, we have plenty of room to expand Um, for oral medications. You name it, we'll be able to expand to it, presuming that everything goes the way we expect it to. Mark, I want to focus on one of the health companies you developed, uh, United uh, Genomics, which you say is focused in on advancing medicine through large-scale analysis of genomic and health data. And I'm wondering, how will genomics and personalized medicine shift the future of drug development landscape? Well, the honest answer, Mark, is I don't know. The guys at genomics know their stuff and they they run their show really, really well. But just generically, our bodies are one big math equation. We don't know how many variables are in that equation, but every single day with advancements in chips and GPUs and just about every other core component of artificial intelligence, we're learning more and more and more about our bodies. 
And when you start mixing those together over time, you truly do get to a point where you have more and more personalized medicine. But in healthcare, of course, there's so much at stake uh, with failure in any element of healthcare. What have your startup experiences in other areas taught you about how you're going to go about this process with your new company, doing it without harm? Look, there's no mistake-free anything anywhere, whether it's healthcare or selling nachos at a Mavs game. The challenge for patients as it applies to healthcare is we're not as transparent as we need to be. And when you're not transparent, then people don't trust it. You know, if you think about the process of getting a prescription, you go to the doctor and the doctor says, sorry, you need to get this. What's your pharmacy? And then you just get the prescription sent to your pharmacy. The pharmacy doesn't know what they're going to charge you until they, they ring it up. You're hoping all your insurance covers it. I think the, the true missing piece, uh, Margaret, is transparency. But I mean, look, look at just hospitals. They can't even get them to do what's legally required of them with transparent pricing on their websites. When I, you know, I had a CT colonoscopy and I had a CT just because I do them every couple of years and I just pay cash price. I don't even go through, you know, my, my insurance simply because I kind of like going through all the hospital spreadsheets to see what the pricing is. <laughs> Without transparency, there's not trust. And when you have organizations creating reasons for, for them not to be trusted, then that's where things go south and they become politicized. I mean, look, in healthcare, what is it, 21% of the total cost of healthcare in this country is administrative. And there's so many easy things that you can do. You could standardize contracts, right? Network contract for every hospital, use a standardized contract that is reviewed and cut the cost and all the research that has to be done. It has to go up the flagpole six feet deep. And then the provider does everything possible to complicate it. My mom died of cancer um, this past February. Yeah, sorry to and me. we went, thank you. Um, she went in to, to talk to the doctors and the doctor says she needed a PET scan. Okay, let's get her a PET scan while she's here. No, you can't get a PET scan while you're in the hospital. You have to come back more than three days later. Mm -hmm. So they get paid the most. My mom was like, no, <laughs> you know, and it cost her and it cost me and it cost my family because this is the ridiculousness that patients have to face. And it's not like the hospitals don't know what they're doing. When they upcode, when they recode, you know, we saw all the, the article in the New York Times yeah. for Medicare right. Advantage, Medicare. Right? right? That's insane. Put me in charge. I'll make a criminal if you do that. Because once you create distrust in the healthcare system, you get what we had with COVID, where people don't trust. You know, a friend of mine um, runs a hospital. Guys I grew up with run, um, there's several hospitals. And, and so I keep in touch with them and they had built this building and they were asking me what I thought was the best approach. And I was like, there's only one answer, sell that building, take that and reduce the rates, you know, and make it more accessible. You don't need a fancy building. Yet that's what you see on every hospital campus. And, you know, I, I, I worked with a group, Toronto, Canada, their real estate is more expensive than Manhattan. Their doctors get paid the same. Their nurses get paid the same as hospitals in Manhattan. Why are all their procedures less than Medicare? And it's really simple when you start looking at it. They're mostly non-private rooms. I actually had um, kidney stones in Toronto one time. They put me just a little curtain around me, but it was not a private room. And I was great. In our hospitals, it's all private rooms. And in Canada, they pay for all of the doctor's li liability insurance. The hospitals are sure they'll get paid for all the patients that come through the door. These are little things that we complicate here in the United States through no liability um, compensation 
when you do that and there's not a lot of transparency, people aren't going to trust and it's going to be more expensive and people are going to go without health care. And that's just insane. Mark, on one side, you, you're battling on the trust and transparency side, and you're coming up against, on the other side, some legacy players in the big pharma world with a lot of skin in the game. Uh, CVS Caremark made about $150 billion in prescription drug space in 2021 alone, and Walmart and Costco have well-established supply chains and, and market share. You've got Amazon turning to direct consumer drug purchasing as well. Use a basketball analogy. How do you outshoot the legacy teams? What's your edge in this really crowded field and when so much profit is hanging in the balance? Well, there's this old saying I use all the time. When you run with the elephants, there's the quick and the dead. We're really, really quick. We're agile. We're evolving all the time. We started off just mail order. Hopefully within the next 60 to 90 days, we'll have a discount card so you'll be able to pick up at a local pharmacy at our pricing because they'll have, you know buy from us and agree to our pricing. And on top of that, rather than some of the other discount cards do, which is charge the pharmacies for the traffic, we'll actually pay the, par- the pharmacies for um, fulfillment, which I think the pharmacies are going to love. So that's one way to do it. You know, Jeff Bezos family said, your, um, your margin is my opportunity. <laughs> and that's exactly what's going on here. You know, Cost Plus Drugs already has more than a million accounts. Nine months in, more than a million accounts, and we're growing rapidly. By the time we finish this, we might be at 1.1 million. And so if we get enough of a base, people are going to want to keep on working with us no matter what the other ones do. You know, maybe they come along and match our pricing. Maybe they come along and do the same thing and just copy us. If the net result is, okay, cost plus isn't as big as it might have otherwise been, but everybody's playing cost plus 15%. Hello, (laughs) you know, problem solved. And so, but at the same time, when you're as big and public, excuse me, as the big three, and there's so much right pocket, left pocket, where, you know, they create or buy this company where they send some margin there. And then that company buys from another one of their subsidiaries and they send some margin there. It's awful, awful hard for them to be cost competitive. There's just too many layers and too much hierarchy for that to work. I think we'll be okay. And I think our number one product is not a medication. Our number one product is trust. And if those other outlets were truly trusted, we wouldn't have any customers. Mark, I heard you say in the last answer to Margaret's question that if someone put you in charge, is this an announcement of any candidacy that we can report on? No, 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 absolutely not. No, my family would disown me. Absolutely (laughs) not. But, you know, some of these providers need skin in the game in terms of their obligations to, to living up to the law. $100 $100 fine per day isn't going to make anybody change their actions. There's just so many, you know, there's just so much money involved and that money keeps on getting bigger and the fines become a smaller, smaller percentage. You know, the minute somebody that works in any, anywhere in that food chain in a major corporation is that fear of going to jail, it all changes. Well, Mark, I've uh, read you're also pretty interested in the potential for new technologies like wearables, Uh, and AI to improve health. Uh, In that little bit of uh, time you might have to think about those things right now, what's exciting you? AI and health sensors, digital health, what what else out there captures your uh, imagination and and your investor's eye? All the above. I mean, I'm a big believer that there's two types of companies in this country, those who are great at AI and everybody else. If you look at the top 10 market share companies, they're great at AI. You know, the Apples, the Googles, et cetera. Um, and 
they're also great at acquiring data. Now we can argue about the privacy issues, but the ability to use AI for personal healthcare is only going to improve. You know, I got criticized for this like six, seven years ago when I talked about it online, but I get my blood tested every four to six months because I want my baseline to be my baseline, not, you know, Mark and I being, you know, baselined against the exact same numbers for what, you know, a male, white male in our age group uh, is supposed to be benchmarked at. And so I started getting my own blood work. I go to capitalize that, connect it with my iWatch and capture that data. And the point being that the more data we have available to us, I think the smarter decisions we can make as patients. You know, sometimes too much data is a bad thing because a lot of patients don't know what to do with it and they get caught up in a, in a vortex or a rabbit hole trying to figure out their, you know, their own health care. But then again, that goes back to trust. If we're able to trust our providers, if we're able to trust our doctors, and we don't rush our doctors, and we give them the chance to explain what's going on to the patients and how this, da- how this data actually impacts their lives, and then we start getting better outcomes. And I think AI has a real role to play. And, and those are the things I look at. I invested in a company, Genestesis, golly, seven years ago, I think. What I didn't know when I invested in, they're out of Cincinnati, is every one of the organs in our body um, emit an electrical signal. I had no idea. And there's scanners that capture that electrical signal. And the first one they work with is the heart. So they capture the electrical signal that comes out of the heart. They save it as um, an audio file, believe it or not. And then they run it, run it through machine learning, AI. And based off of tens of thousands of examples, they're able to correlate what issues the patient might be having with their heart. Because anybody our age knows that you feel something in your chest, you immediately get nervous. And so many people go to the hospital and there's no quick way to resolve what that is. So you might get checked in, you might get sent home. There's just, it's really, really difficult. But using AI and genestesis, they're going through their trials now. Um, the hope is you get scanned, you run it through the AI, and it tells you with you know some level of accuracy the most likely thing that's going on with your heart. And so things like that, to me, have huge upside. Things that make us smarter, make us more efficient, um, allow us to, to do it for less. Those are all things that I think will, AI will drive and that I get excited about. We've been speaking with entrepreneur and Shark Tank host Mark Cuban, who has launched an online entity, Cost Plus Drugs, seeking to shake up the prescription drug market. You can follow our show and learn more about all of our guests at CACradio.com. Mark, thank you so much for joining us, and we'll continue to follow your innovations. Thank you. Thanks for having me on, and I encourage everybody, go to costplusdrugs.com, put in the name of your medication, and compare it to what you're paying. If you're paying anything out of pocket, we're probably lower than your copay. And if you're an organization, a company, whatever it may be, a clinic, do the same thing because we're probably cheaper than what your insurance company is charging you and you can end up paying a lot less in premium. So check us out. Thanks guys for having me on. It was a great conversation. I really enjoyed it. Thanks so much. Conversations on Healthcare, we want our audience to be truly in the know when it comes to the facts about healthcare reform and policy. Lori Robertson is an award-winning journalist and managing editor of factcheck.org, a nonpartisan, nonprofit consumer advocate for voters that aim to reduce the level of deception in US politics. Lori, what have you got for us this week? President Joe Biden signed into law the Inflation Reduction Act on August 16. Part of the law deals with Medicare and prescription drugs. 
The law will lower at least some Medicare beneficiaries' prescription costs on Part D, that's Medicare's prescription drug program, and on Part B. The law requires the federal government to negotiate prices for some Medicare medications. It caps seniors' out-of-pocket drug costs at $2,000 a year. It caps monthly insulin copays at $35 and it limits Part D premium increases. Again, that's all for Medicare, not private health plans. Republicans have focused on the price negotiation aspect, and the pharmaceutical industry has long fought against attempts to enact such a policy. Their argument is that the policy would reduce the number of new drugs pharmaceutical companies bring to market. The nonpartisan Congressional Budget Office estimated there would be just two fewer drugs launched over the next decade under the legislation. Seniors who spend more than $2,000 a year on prescriptions would clearly benefit. That cap on yearly spending would launch in 2025, and it could affect more than 1.4 million beneficiaries based on 2020 enrollee data. Right now, out-of-pocket costs of more than $7,050 for Part D drugs pushes seniors into what's called the catastrophic phase. They pay 5% of their drug costs after that threshold. The Inflation Reduction Act eliminates the 5% copay in 2024, benefiting more than 1.3 million seniors. The cap on insulin copays also could affect millions. Seniors who now can't afford to buy needed medicines also would benefit from the bill. And that's my fact check for this week. I'm Lori Robertson, managing editor of factcheck.org. Factcheck.org is committed to factual accuracy from the country's major political players and is a project of the Annenberg Public Policy Center at the University of Pennsylvania. If you have a fact that you'd like checked, email us at chcradio.com. We'll have factcheck.org's Lori Robertson check it out for you here on Conversations on Healthcare. Each week, Conversations highlights a bright idea about how to make wellness a part of our communities and everyday lives. An estimated 800 million people in the world lack access to electricity and some 2 billion people to clean water. And those living in sub-Saharan Africa are most lacking in these essential resources. So-called ecopreneurs Emiliano Ciccini and Davide Bonsignor sought to create a sustainable solution for these communities that lacked not just these vital resources, but the infrastructure needed to deliver them as well. They engineered a portable solution, the off-grid box, a six-foot by six-foot container that, when assembled on-site with a solar panel roof, generates enough power to support a village's basic energy needs. And the box also contains a pump and water purification system that can provide more than 5,000 gallons of clean, filtered water per day, a huge benefit for these communities who must carry containers of often contaminated water over long distances from water sources that are increasingly diminished by climate change. So these are subsistence economies where people off the grid in scarcity of water are trying to produce and grow food. So we go there and we provide safe drinking water, clean power for basic electricity needs, power to pump water, and for agriculture. The off-grid box is managed by local operators who are trained on the system's dedicated app, allowing villagers to update their energy use and water production data every day. 
and locals are also trained as technicians to troubleshoot problems that may arise. The goal is to create a sustainable solution for communities most impacted by climate change without adding to the global climate crisis. Climate change, it's accelerating. The increase of price of fossil fuel is accelerating. The problem is how we can develop technologies that are usable and easily maintainable. More than 70 off-grid box systems have been installed across Sub-Saharan Africa thus far, and community health has improved from gaining consistent access to clean water. Farmers are able to expand their crop yields and economic opportunities evolve around the sustainable source of clean water and renewable energy. The off-grid box, a sustainable renewable power source providing energy for local schools, homes, clinics, and entrepreneurs, as well as clean potable water for drinking and farming, yielding increased health and economic prosperity for communities that are struggling to survive in some of the most climate-challenged parts of the world. Now that's a bright idea. I'm Mark Maselli. And I'm Margaret Flinter. Peace and health. Conversations on Healthcare is recorded in the Knowledge and Technology Center studios in Middletown, Connecticut, and is brought to you by the Community Health Center, now celebrating 50 years of providing quality care to the underserved, where healthcare is a right, not a privilege. CHC1.com and CHCRadio.com. <laughs>